Hello and welcome. I'm Ben Schultz. I'm Nora Schultz. And you're listening to Trying to Adapt, and today we're trying to adapt to A Christmas Carol, the 1971 animated version starring Alastair Sim, who was reprising his role as Ebenezer Scrooge after he played it in the live-action version we watched in the last two episodes 20 years prior. Now, if you um, actually went to watch the animated version that we were talking about previously, you might hear A Christmas Carol animated and start groaning. But I have to say right now that this is beautiful. I want you to keep that in mind throughout everything we say. There was no part of this where I didn't like the animation. The animation is very wild. I don't know if it's... Oh, it's super, like, 1971 trippy. I don't know if it's always the best thing for the story... But it's visually delightful. It's always good, even if it's not the right kind of good. I also really appreciate this one for taking the time to carefully draw out, like, Victorian London architecture. This one has some of the most beautiful sceneries I've seen. Yeah, and you can kind of see, like, they very much want to keep that, that 1800s Victorian aesthetic, and you can see that at the very beginning in the title cards, which are taken pretty much directly from the frontispiece of the original book. It's beautiful. Uh, now, every version of A Christmas Carol has to establish its setting somehow. Most adaptations don't do it quite so literally as this version. The place, London. The time, 1843. The season, that of jollity, of festivity and charity. I like that because, in general, I like when people just kind of presume that a like a a story that takes place clearly in an era but not in a certain year. I like when people just kind of presume that it's like the year it was published, because I guess there's no reason not to. But at the same time, like, really, was it bothering you that much that there wasn't like a certain year? I always thought it was kind of implied in the book that like this is a story that had happened like a couple years prior, so maybe assuming that it's the date of publication, is not. Well, exactly, because it's published in 1843, but at the end, Charles Dickens specifically tells us that Tiny Tim didn't die. He became a second father. Clearly, he didn't become a second father to him in the course of, like, a couple months. Unless Charles Dickens himself is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Or, I was gonna say, unless Charles Dickens is an unreliable narrator and is just making this shit up, like, he probably becomes a second father to Tiny Tim, right? That, that sounds good. Now, I will say that Alistair Sim is still the best Scrooge, but I did notice that he delivers certain lines, like, noticeably differently. And there weren't any where I was like, oh, he obviously did it better in this one, or he obviously did it better 20 years ago. Like, they were all just different. They were different takes, and they were all equally good. Having the same person play Scrooge in two different adaptations, and having him play Scrooge differently is very interesting because it always provokes the kind of question of, like, did he, at some point in the past 20 years, decide he did that in a way that he didn't really like? He felt that that was wrong and he wanted to do it in a better way? Yeah, or maybe he just felt, you know, I've given that to the world. Here's a different medium. Here's a different... Obviously, the Scrooge doesn't look like me because it's animated. I'll just feel this one out. This Scrooge definitely doesn't have... um Especially compared to the other Alistair Sim version, like, his voice acting is spot on. But sometimes, like, the lines that he is saying, as well as, like, his body language and facial reactions or whatever, you know, it can't compare with the 1951 Scrooge. However, 
One little thing about this Scrooge that I really appreciated is that when <laughs> the charity collectors come to him... Yes, I know. You'll tell me that many can't go there and many would rather die. Well, we'd better do that. But he basically, like, predicts what they're going to say to him, which to me gives the sense that, like... I don't know, I started having some crazy thoughts about how maybe this is a Scrooge who is like aware that he's going through this. Like just vaguely aware that he's been through this experience many times before. And that would be interesting if it were intentional because it would kind of comment on how many times this story has been done. That's honestly one thing that I really love about like adaptations of stories that have been adapted many times before, like very famous stories. Or like whether it's the narrator or characters in the story, like comment on the fact that like this has happened many times before. Like that is something that always hits me hard. And I wish that they like had the instinct to play with that more in this version. Like if that came up multiple times, we really only see Scrooge kind of predict what's going to happen to him, like, with the tax collectors. But, um, that definitely, like, I'm just gonna put it out there right now that if anyone wants to create an adaptation of A Christmas Carol, or knows of one where it's like this, I guess genre savvy? It's not really a genre. Like, savvy to the story. And comment, like, kind of break the fourth wall and comment on, like, how many adaptations there have been. Yeah, hopefully this podcast is kind of like a velvet underground type of thing. Not many people listen to it, but everyone who does makes their own adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Or maybe eventually, maybe like three years down the line, we'll have some like insane like Charles Dickens stan listen to all these episodes and be like, I'll be in college. And they'll be like, hey, I know you were involved with this project. Listen, I have these crazy Christmas Carol adaptations, super rare. No one's ever heard of them before. You gotta look at them. There better be someone out there who can do that for us. Hook us up. I'm begging you. If you were listening to this like 50 years later, hopefully I'll still be alive. Contact me. So when Scrooge's nephew comes to visit, I think this version does an unusually good job making Scrooge's nephew look annoying to Scrooge and maybe even to the audience because he, he really does like get right up into his face and invade kind of his personal space. And it also, like, the camera kind of goes, like, to Scrooge's perspective for a second, and, like, Fred's face gets super large. And I I do kind of like that moment of, like, stepping into Scrooge's shoes. Because, I mean, the rest of the story is kind of made to make the audience empathize with him. But why not start that up a little earlier? Now, I think the animation really hits its stride. It starts when Scrooge um, is about to enter his house and he looks on the door knocker and there's Jacob Marley's face because this effect is obviously accomplished, I would say, more dramatically through animation. You know, almost more realistically in the sense that, like, when everything's animated, you're not really thinking about, like, this doesn't look realistic. And so it seems more realistic because there's nothing realistic to compare it to if that makes sense. I also really like the animation when Scrooge enters his dark house and there's a lot of like perspective shifting and playing around with shadows. I would say that the ghosts in general, I tend to like better when they're animated. Again, with like the realism quality because if Scrooge doesn't look realistic, then the ghosts don't have to look realistic either. Jacob Marley's face appears in the door knocker and then goes away, and then Scrooge goes up and changes into his pajamas and his dunce cap. That's what it looks like. <laughs> Damn. It's like a dunce cap that's, like, deflated. Well, sometimes it really does, like, stand up. When he gets scared. 
Another really interesting thing about this adaptation is that there is hardly any background music. That's one thing that really struck me. Pretty much anyone who knows anything about like filmmaking would tell you when there isn't background music, it suddenly like hits you how important. But here the absence of it I think is just as important because it really like, it gives the dialogue a kind of naturalistic quality. I would say it kind of, it makes the whole adaptation more tense, more eerie. Yeah, so the ghost of Jacob Marley comes in to Scrooge's room. In their conversation, I don't think Marley actually identifies himself, and he certainly, I think, doesn't look like Jacob Marley did in life. So I think Scrooge recognizing him is based solely on the fact that he saw Marley's face in the door knocker a little bit earlier. Which I guess makes sense. Which is something that I think usually people who are making these adaptations kind of forget. Like, when Marley's ghost first arrives, they often have Scrooge react to it as though he never saw Marley's face in the door knocker. Yeah, it tends, to, I think, to go either, like, way too much on the side of, like, he has no idea who he's looking at, and then, like, sometimes some have him, like, identify Jacob Marley, like, easily, instantly, and, like, doesn't seem too, like, freaked out by it. Once again, this is one of the adaptations where Marley tells Scrooge that they're gonna come on different nights. I don't think that was in the live-action movie, was it? No, in the live-action movie, as I pointed out, Marley says the first ghost will come at one and then leaves. Yeah, so I don't know why they, like, I liked that better. They, they downgraded the, the ghost timing for this one. Yeah, the interesting thing is you have Scrooge being played by the same actor, but I don't know if the people who created this adaptation were specifically looking at Alastair Sims' other portrayal of Scrooge as their basis. One moment where I feel like they may definitely have done that is, um, I commented on it in the last episode, the, like, when the ghosts are looking at a, you know, like, homeless pair, and, like, Marley comments on how the ghost's torment comes from the fact that they had lost the power to interfere for good and how much I liked that scene. I think I like it even better in this one, because it's really similar, but just has, like, you know, there's so much you can do in animation with shading and art style that I think makes that moment even more impactful. Yeah, I don't think we really commented on it in last episode, but that effect was not great in the live-action version. The effect wasn't great, but I liked the that moment and that line that I love so much. was I appreciated its inclusion, even if the special effect wasn't that great. Marley has, like, a bandage on his head, and he unwraps it to reveal that, like, his jaw falls all the way open, and it stays, so it doesn't really look like he's talking, which is an interesting kind of disturbing effect in the animation. No, I think that was from the book. The, like, he unwraps his bandage and his jaw falls. Right, but I think in the book, his jaw falls off. Perhaps. Not that it falls to his neck. Yeah. That kind of perfectly segues into my um, other, like, oh, they really looked at the book description for this. The Ghost of Christmas Past is terrifying and beautiful here, which I think, like, I literally think that this might be the closest to what Charles Dickens was imagining. Because... It looks kind of like maybe an old man, child, definitely not human. It's very trippy. Yeah, most of the time, the Ghost of Christmas Past's face has like four eyes or three mouths or something. Kind of has this like constantly moving effect that I'm a big fan of in general. But here, the Ghost of Christmas Past is like literally always moving as if you're kind of seeing this like 
I don't know how to describe it. It's very, like, ethereal. And I think that constantly moving quality applies not only to the animation here, but also kind of to the pacing of the story. Obviously, they have a lot to do and a lot to fit in within 25 minutes. I kind of like it, though. And not to, like, not to say that I have, like, a particularly poor attention span. Like, I also, like, I don't get bored easily. But, um... I like the quick pacing, at least, especially for an animated adaptation, because I think, like, you should harness the fact that in animation you can make things constantly move, you know, without tiring the actors. I think definitely if you're the kind of person who gets an hour into a movie, no matter how interesting it is, and starts to feel like it's dragging on, this is the Christmas Carol adaptation for you. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that out of the shorter ones we've seen, this is probably the, like... Again, you know how much I hate calling adaptations faithful. I've been all I've been over that already, so for now I'll just say faithful to the book. And speaking of being faithful to the book, um the scene where Scrooge as a kid is like picturing the things that he's reading about in his book, this finally can be like seen in all of its glory with the like trippy 1971 animation. And it's beautiful, but from a plot context, I feel like it only seems to make Scrooge's childhood seem kind of sick. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, he's lonely, but he seems to be having the time of his life with these cool, like, animated parrots and stuff. This was also, this particular moment was one of the things that kind of made me think that it feels like a commercial, because... In that moment, you see him reading this book, and there's like a cloud of different story characters floating above his head. It's like, wait a minute, has this whole thing been a PSA about how kids should read books? Well, no, it definitely seemed to make reading books seem super fucking rad, which, by the way, it is. That's gonna be my PSA, but... We're gonna print out posters that say, reading books is super fucking rad, Nora Schultz. Yeah, um, I only read three of them this year but they were very long and interesting. If you want to know more, you can follow me on Twitter. Anyways, I liked that moment, but again, like from a character establishing standpoint, I don't know if it necessarily the right message about Scrooge. One, th this might have been my favorite thing about the entire adaptation is right after this moment, the Ghost of Christmas Past says like, let's skip ahead a couple Christmases and kind of like waves its hand. And all of a sudden we like see Scrooge sitting in the same spot, getting older with over the course of like three seconds. Like one of those I take a picture of myself every day things from 2007. And there's this really cool sound effect that plays at the same time. <laughs> you don't have to include this. But I think it sounded like the sound effect in the um, Ten Dimensions video where you like pull... Hopefully the listener knows what that is. The ten Come on, the Ten Dimensions video that everyone's seen. Everyone grew up with on YouTube. Everyone saw it because it was always in your recommended videos on YouTube in 2009. That and the pulling a sphere inside out. That's the sound effect that plays. <laughs> and it's cool. Another thing I really liked about the Ghost of Christmas Past scene is that as the Ghost of Christmas Past is kind of like talking to him about Fezziwig... A small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. We actually like see for a moment recycled animation with like Scrooge being mean to Marley earlier that day. Being mean to Cratchit. I think I've done this multiple times now, haven't I? You have. It's not as bad as the time you said Bob Marley instead of Jacob, though. I've literally been afraid of making that mistake for, like, five years of my life, so... And I did it for an audience. 
Cool. Yeah. And you didn't edit it out. I couldn't. <laughs> Nothing I say is so important that you can't edit it out. Yeah, so I really do like that moment because I think animation captures that in a way that maybe like a live action and it would seem kind of corny to like cut back to like the scene that he saw earlier. Maybe just because of the mood of the entire thing, it really does feel like we're seeing what Scrooge is seeing in his head. One of the things that uh, the Ghost of Christmas Past pretty much always shows Scrooge or tries to show Scrooge is the scene where he's breaking up with his fiance or his fiance is breaking up with him, I guess. For the most part, we don't really get a sense of when this is taking place. All of the other scenes are, like, obviously at Christmas. This one has no, like, particular indication for the most part. Maybe yeah, there's some... No, there's not... It's not a Christmas even scene. Maybe some adaptations will throw, like, a Christmas tree in the background to show that it's Christmas, that this is happening. In this version, it is explicitly not happening at Christmas because they're standing in the middle of a lush green field with trees everywhere and you can hear birds chirping no it is beautiful so and like this isn't really a complaint because again it's not explicitly stated that the ghost of christmas past can only show scrooge memories that happened on christmas um or memories or transport in there or however you're thinking of this um there's so many different ways to like frame the ghosts but this does raise a question because this is the ghost of christmas past is the ghost of Christmas past allowed to do this? Is there not some other ghost who's supposed to be dealing with spring and summer past? Now, of course, there is the ghost theory that Scrooge is just simply dreaming all of this, which I think is personally my favorite, even though it's the most boring. And because you're taking that position, I have to take the opposite position to keep things interesting. So I think that it is definitely real ghosts. I like that we finally got to figuring that out in, like, episode... 9, 10. This is episode 10. In episode 10. Again, this always makes me feel like a terrible person to say, but I like that Tiny Tim, like, legitimately seems to have trouble moving around here and has, like, a full leg cast. He isn't just kind of like, oh, here's my weak ankle that I need a crutch for. Now, I'll point out that you're moving directly into the Ghost of Christmas present sequence. Oh, I didn't even mention it because it was so similar to the live-action movie. That's a good point, but I do want to say that the Ghost of Christmas Present is an absolute unit. He's like oh, yeah. 15 feet tall. Yeah, here animation really captures that in a way that I think like live action adaptations have trouble. Instead, of, like I mean, like you can't just cast Scrooge as a manlet and that sort of deal. Here, yeah, no, he is like even more of a unit than he was in the 1951 one. And another comment about the Ghost of Christmas Present in the book, he sprinkles some kind of like magic spirit dust on people who are getting mad at each other to make them, like, happy for Christmas. In this version, instead of being dust or, like, sometimes it's alcohol that he's sprinkling, uh, in this version he just kind of waves his torch over people's heads, which he can do very easily because he's very tall, and he just lets drops of something fall on them. It's probably fine. Um, a lie I really liked here, I think that, I'm pretty sure that this, like, almost verbatim is from the book, but I, its inclusion is kind of rare, and I don't know why. Maybe it's just, like, a little bit esoteric for, like, a family Christmas movie. But when Scrooge starts getting worried about Tiny Tim, and the Ghost of Christmas Present roasts him by saying, like, well... If he be like to die, he had better do it. Don't. And decrease the surplus population. And then he says, like... Oh, God... To hear the insect on the leaf 
pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. That is a sick line. We need to see more of that line in adaptations, please. Now in this one too, the Ghost of Christmas Present takes Scrooge to like the big mining family. The composition of this shot is like almost identical to the live action movie. However, I feel like the animation here just kind of like highlights like the lighting and the expression on their faces and the poverty of the people. And I don't know, I just found it more impactful in this version. It definitely seems to have like more meaning to it. However, they also include like the scenes of like, oh, there's a guy in a lighthouse and a guy on a ship. However, I would say that these scenes are not, like, as clearly depicting people in, like, bad situations. Like, the guy at the lighthouse has a buddy that he's hanging out with. The guy on the ship is just doing... doing his job. He might be getting paid pretty well. He doesn't seem particularly poor. He's singing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen to himself. Who cannot be a merry gentleman when they're singing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen? I don't know. The other scenes just didn't evoke my empathy as much. You know, I was like, hell yeah, I want to be partying with the guys in the lighthouse. At the end of the Ghost of Christmas present sequence, as kind of usual, they show that he's like getting old and he's going to die at midnight. And then he takes this opportunity to show Scrooge ignorance and want. The two children which represent uh, ignorance and want as philosophical concepts. And then Scrooge, again, like as always, he asks what can be done to help even though they are not real children. They're not real children and also they are representative of bad things. How can I help ignorance? We have not figured that one out. I don't understand. Are we supposed to feel bad for ignorance? Shouldn't we want ignorance to be starving? Maybe next year we'll crack that nut. But Maybe I, I will be a smarter person in 2019. But I also want to point out that Scrooge says to the Ghost of Christmas Present when he sees these kids, Are they yours? Which is also pretty usual, but... <laughs> Every single time I hear that, I always hear in my head, in the Ghost of Christmas Present's voice, Yes, I birthed them myself while I was talking to you. <laughs> it's very painful, but I'm good at hiding it. But in this one in particular, I like that, like, Scrooge asks, like, what's that under your robe? Because, like, one of their hands is kind of poking out. But I like the idea that, like, the Ghost of Christmas Present wouldn't have shown them to him if he hadn't pointed it out. Like, he would have just left, like, <laughs> like, he, like, talks to the kids, like, sorry, kids, maybe next time he'll notice. I also like the thought that maybe the Ghost of Christmas Present would hear him say that and be like, oh, shit, shit, shit. He's like, be quiet! <laughs> I will say that even though the Want and Ignorance kids still don't make any sense to me, I like that in this version they're, like, animated in a very creepy way. Like, it feels like it means something powerful, even though I'm still not sure what it means. Now, I had a thought. The Ghost of Christmas Present is actually... That, that whole thing is taking place in the near future. It's Like taking, 12 hours from then. <laughs> right, because it's actually the middle of the night, Christmas morning. What if... The Ghost of Christmas Present isn't the one who brought him there. What if it's the Ghost of Christmas yet to come who brought him into the near future to meet the Ghost of Christmas Present and then comes and collects him when the Ghost of Christmas Present dies? To bring him further, and then I guess he also has the power to bring him back in his own time. It would be pretty bad if he didn't have the power to bring Scrooge back. <laughs> like, he sees his tombstone, and then, like... 
He's like, please let me erase the writing on the script. And the ghost of Christmas yet to come, like, kind of shrugs. And then he maybe he, like, under his breath, he's like, oh, shit. And so then Scrooge <laughs> just has to, like, deal with the fact that, like, maybe he can't die now because he's created a paradox or something like that. On the other hand, I think it would actually be legitimately good if there were an adaptation where uh, the ghost of Christmas yet to come kind of leaves Scrooge there at his tombstone for, like, a minute and he thinks that, like it's all over and he's like dead for real and then like he starts becoming one of those ghosts that like tries to help homeless people but then realizes like i can't have an impact anymore or at the very least he thinks that that's what he's becoming and like after a couple minutes he does finally wake up in his bed yeah i would like that like just kind of an extra scare for this old man and it would give new significance to the part where the ghosts outside scrooge's window are trying to help I like in this version, I always call them like grave robbers and then realize that they weren't robbing his grave. They're, they're the room robbers. In this version, that the room robbers like look very creepy. But then I started to think about it and I was like, wait a second, how are they the bad guys here? I already gave pretty much everything I have to say about the room robbers or the dead guy stuff ladies as I previously yeah, called them. Yeah, you can them. call them the dead guy stuff ladies. ladies. I'm gonna keep calling them the room robbers. Uh, I said pretty much everything I had to say about them in the last episode. For all of the things that I like about this adaptation, it's kind of, I wouldn't say completely ruined for me. Because I feel like almost every single adaptation has done this, even the ones that I've called, like, my new favorites. But once a fucking again, when Scrooge sees his tombstone, the emphasis is on the fact that he's dead. Not that nobody is mourning him. I almost feel like at some point we're going to be obligated to make our own adaptation of A Christmas Carol just so we can get that right. Just to fix that for, like, the public imagination. Because when you read the book, it really is clear that, like, the thing that Scrooge is pissed about and scared of is that no one in the whole city cares that this man has died. The point of the gravestone reveal is not he dies. It's that he was the man that he was just feeling so sorry for. Now, this is particularly bad in some adaptations, not this one. Some adaptations, the only part where the Ghost of Christmas yet to come shows him is the grave. There's no room robbers. There's no Cratchit's mourning over Tiny Tim's death. There's no businessmen talking about whether there's going to be a lunch provided. Those were probably the worst ones. By the way, there's still no I don't eat lunch guy. We are 10 episodes in, and we have seen no sign of the guy who never eats lunch from the original book. Literally every time we get to that scene and we don't hear the I never eat lunch line, we both go, damn it. However, we do in that scene have one of the businessmen who like has this kind of pointy red nose. And for a minute, he looks like he himself is dying. <laughs> yeah, there's a moment where he just kind of like makes this like guttural sound, stops moving completely, and then like starts laughing. <laughs> he's fine. He's really okay. Of course, then he wakes up in the morning and he's giddy. And once again, he's giddy in a way that kind of makes me uncomfortable. I don't think I've seen an adaptation yet where I'm like totally like comfortable with how Scrooge is. I feel like there isn't going to be one. Even in the book, it's kind of like, oh, that's a little weird. <laughs> Did you, do you have to make him like this? So, I don't know if there will ever be a Christmas Carol adaptation where I see Scrooge and he's just, like, happy but in, like, a content way. Instead, he seems like he's just kind of having, like, a manic episode. Which is fair. It's totally justified. Understandable. Yeah, I'm sure I would be the same way. But it is always just kind of a little unpleasant to watch. 
as usual, we have the boy outside his window who informs Scrooge that it's Christmas Day, and then I, I refer to him as the turkey boy, because usually uh, Scrooge has him go and get the prize turkey that's as big as him. Uh, in this version, he does not do that. Scrooge actually goes to the shop and buys the prize turkey himself, and why shouldn't he? I mean, if he, I like that. What if, is the point of the turkey boy? If, other than to tell him it's Christmas. If he is like a redeemed man who understands his own like humility, shouldn't he like be perfectly willing to go to a shop and like do errands? Yeah, why is he still getting a little boy to do his work for him? I mean, I guess it's kind of like he wants to give the boy- Why doesn't he just give the boy money? Because he has so much of it. You know, it's like, it's Christmas Day. Thank you for telling me that. Here's a load of cash. Now, but this this version of the turkey boy, who does not get the turkey, so it's just the boy, uh, has a very deep voice. Makes me think that, like, he's kind of starting puberty. Today, Christmas Day! I did say that Scrooge being, like, super giddy makes me uncomfortable. However, I will say, and this applies for the 1951 as well, Alistair Sims' laughter just makes me happy. His laughter just really makes me feel warm inside. Thank you, sir. Also, because I guess I'm on, like, the duty of, like, pointing out anything that's, like, maybe slightly, like, homoerotic or, like, more progressive than they intended, there is kind of a nice moment where Scrooge talks about, like, Jacob Marley and how grateful he is, which I think, like, should be included in more adaptations. You know, I think there should be a shout-out to my buddy. I know he's somewhere around here. I just can't see him anymore. And then you just see, like, a floating eye kind of, like, wink. You should see, like, floating hands start to, like, clap slowly. <laughs> yeah, so he kind of, like, gives himself a hug as he, like, talks about Jacob Marley, which I thought was, like, maybe a little bittersweet. Like, he's imagining how Jacob Marley used to hold him. Um, the other woke moment was um he, like when he, as he leaves his house he praises the door knocker that he saw marley in you know he's like such a wonderful door knocker and kind of like touches it nicely you know it's like he's like i never noticed before like hmm maybe seeing your your old husband's face in the door knocker made you feel a little better about it i don't know that, that's all i've got on that front is that all you've got on all fronts no i was also going to say that when he buys he goes to buy the prize turkey turkey is spelled t-u-r-k-e-e -E, and it makes me really happy for no reason it makes me very h-a-p-e-e h-a-p-p -E. <laughs> it makes me very h-a-p-p-e-e -E to see that the other thing i was going to say one of the other things i was gonna say i have a few more notes is that when he sees the charity collector in the street, I like that he, like, whispers what how what he's going to give. We've seen that in a couple other adaptations. I think, like, in the book, too, we don't see, like, like what the amount is. But I want to know, like, why that has to be a secret to the audience. I think that's a very good thing to do because this takes place nearly 200 years ago, and there's been a lot of inflation since then. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Like, it so makes it a little more... It makes it more timeless because if he was, like... I'm going to give you a hundred dollars. That would not be super impressive. Especially for children. Like, I feel, I hope that if this is still around and able to be watched in a hundred years, that, like, kids will imagine, like, wow, I bet he gave him, like, a trillion dollars or something. <laughs> a trillion dollars will be how much it costs to buy a new hover car. Which is a decent amount to give to a charity, I think. So... I think this is a common problem with adaptations that feature the, like, Scrooge is, like, clearly very concerned about how he's gonna die. This one, 
left me with the feeling of like, man, we sure are glad that this one man was visited by ghosts or else he would have just continued to be an asshole. And I've said this so many times before, but I understand that the point is that like you can learn from this lesson without having to be visited by ghosts. But I still like, I don't like having to think about that. And for whatever reason, this one just made me think about it. Overall, my general conclusion, um, it was extremely beautiful. I would say that the Ghost of Christmas Past sequence was definitely the highlight, both with like how the Ghost of Christmas Past appears and like the let's go through your Christmases. Visually, very atmospheric. Um, when it comes to the characters and the plot development, I thought it was pretty average, like middle of the road. Yeah, um, I think part of that is the fact that the pacing is pretty weird, and I think that's necessarily going to be a problem that you run into trying to condense this story into 25 minutes, and I don't really know if you could do a better job than they did. I would definitely recommend watching this after the 1951 movie, because there aren't necessarily that many things in common, and yet, just like Alistair Sims' presence, I think, makes this feel like a spiritual successor. And like I said, there's a few key scenes, like the um, ghosts trying to interfere for good, that definitely seem to call back to that movie. So, definitely watch both of these. I mean, if, if you're going to watch the 1951 one, I would say also make time for this one. You know, you could like include this as well, and then you've got like two hours of entertainment. Weekend plans right there. My weekends are two hours long, so this is going to be perfect for me. <laughs> yeah, but I would say the 1951 movie, best Scrooge, best character development overall, best plot development. This one is definitely up there for me in best atmosphere, best like capturing the mood of um, Charles Dickens' story. I feel legally obligated to say every single time that capturing the book itself is not necessarily the best thing when it comes to adapting a story. In this case, I feel pretty safe in saying that it's appreciated. I think that's just about everything that we have to say. So, without further ado, I've been Ben Schultz. I've been Nora Schultz. And you have been listening to Trying to Adapt. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.